Now, our study this summer is on heaven. And a lot of times, if you've been here the last decade that I've preached, the vast majority of our studies, we walk through a book of the Bible. And we let God tell us and teach us through that book. Now, the heaven series, it's topical which means each week we're going to be in a different section of the Bible learning something. Sometimes we'll be camped out in one section of the Bible, and the whole study on that Sunday will be just in that section. This morning we're going to bounce around to some different parts of the Bible. But all, nevertheless, everything that I want to give you this summer comes from God's Word. And the theme for this series I put it right there, where you belong. Heaven is the place where God has created us to dwell in eternity. In fact, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God made men for this eternal purpose. And in that passage, the writer, Ecclesiastes 3.11, he says, He has put eternity into man's heart. John MacArthur says that nothing in post-fall, everything after the fall of man, nothing can bring them complete satisfaction. You imagine and think back, Adam, in that garden, there's nothing that was separating him from fellowship with God. And we've never been able to get back to that in its complete form that God made. I think about a song actually titled, where I Belong, written by a, a modern group. This is an old hymn. Uh, Switchfoot is the, is the group. I love this song. I love the words of the song. I find myself listening to it often. It's, and it, it's simply about looking ahead, and they know this is where eternity is where we really belong. Some of the words in this song, but I'm not sentimental. This skin and bones is a rental, and no one makes it out alive. Until I die, I'll sing these songs on the shores of Babylon, still looking for a home in a world where I belong. Where the weak are finally strong, where the righteous right the wrongs, still looking for a home in a world where I belong. And the gist of the song is they're looking for something they can't find here. And that is true of all of us. We can never find complete satisfaction. Whatever it is you're looking for and you attain, it might give you satisfaction for a time, but eventually it wears out. Eventually you're looking for something else to fill that void within you. And God has put in us eternity, something. Think about that. Romans 8 22 says, for we know the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Paul says there's something within us that groans. There's something within creation that groans because it's, there's something not right. It's not completely right. Pastor David Jeremiah says, within every Christian, there is a hunger that's waiting to be fulfilled. It's as if we know there's something that is missing from our redemption experience that the last chapter has yet to be revealed. 
I think about a compass. And I used this illustration earlier in the summer as we were finishing up Galatians. A compass always points to true north. And one writer, um, Mark Buchanan, said this can be a great illustration for us as Christians. In the same way that a compass is always telling us where true north is. God put eternity in us to always point us where we are truly meant to be. And if we're always orienting ourselves some other direction, I've got a career, I've got, I'm looking for that perfect soulmate, it won't fully satisfy us. It's not true north. Buchanan says God has made us to yearn, to always be hungry for something we can't get, to always be missing something we can't find to always be disappointed with what we receive, to always have an insatiable emptiness that nothing can fill and an untamable restlessness that no discovery can still. Yearning itself is healthy, a kind of compass inside us pointing us to our true north where we belong. And the question I begin in this series is, where does your compass point? Where are you oriented? We get it wrong. We get it wrong so much. This topic of heaven, I want to, uh, before I give you how we get it right, I want you to think about how we get it wrong and why our compass sometimes gets oriented the wrong way. For example, what do you know about heaven? I hope the answer comes from this, not from, hey, I just read a book about a guy who went to heaven and came back. I saw a YouTube video about a guy who was sitting in his chair watching TV, had a heart attack, and he went up to heaven, but then God sent him back so he could tell us. I actually watched a YouTube video this week just so I could you know, orient myself to this illustration. What, what did you find in heaven when you went there? That's one way we can get it wrong. You know, I use this illustration also to, to explain why God doesn't want any graven images. Because a graven image, whatever part of the image you might get right, it always communicates something wrong about God. The artist makes the image, this is my image of God. I want it to portray the love of God. But you know what you get wrong? Justice. There's other attributes, righteousness. How can you create any image that fully encompasses a description of God? And it's the same thing with these modern stories. I listen to one, and I'm like, well, a lot of what you're saying is actually in the Bible. You're just retelling me things about what you found, what I find in the Bible. And you know what? Oh, there's something I heard that doesn't jive with the Bible. You're getting something wrong there. Cultural views of the afterlife. One of the most common responses I hear, you know, good people, they go to heaven. Most of the people see when they, when they say that, they assume they're one of the good people. <laughs> I've never met a person that says, these are the kind of people that go to heaven. You know what? I'm not one of them. Only the really bad people. I mean, that's, this, is, this can be something that we latch on to in our culture. It's quite common. How about uh, a personal view of God? I've heard someone once say, 
you know, I, I, I like the heaven thing, but, you know, the hell thing, it's just, I can't, it's, it's too strong. How could a loving God allow someone to spend eternity there? I just, I can't serve a God like that. And see, that's, that is quicksand. Because that line right there, I can't serve a God like that. You could latch onto that and say almost anything about God and shape Him to your view of what you want Him to be. I can't serve a God that doesn't let me be whatever kind of gender I want. I can't serve a God who, you see, you can fill in the blank. You can make God to be whatever you want then. And this is why. This summer as we walk through and we answer questions, and I could just say, what question do you have about heaven? The answers are going to come from this. And the first lesson I want to give you really is about the foundation upon understanding, or for you, maybe discovering what heaven is like and why we belong there. In fact, that's the, uh, the first point I want to give you is the Bible is authoritative on what we know. It is the authority Anything I want to say about heaven is going to come out of God's word. Now, you need to understand something. In the early church, there were three authoritative streams. In, in other words, there were kind of three places where the early church was getting authoritative information. And I put this up here in a way to relate it to heaven, but it related to all truth about God. And the first was the Old Testament prophets. Now, the early church, they accepted the books of the Old Testament. There was no question within the Jewish religion. These books were from God. The prophets gave them to us. Now, here's one about heaven. Isaiah 65, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. So they could go back and say, what did the prophets tell us about eternity? What did they say about heaven? There's one example right there, but I'm showing you that was one of the streams of authority, okay? Another stream of authority was Jesus's teaching. One of the most famous verses you probably know this when John 14, 2. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. What does Jesus say about heaven? Well, he just told us right there, there's a lot of mansions there. Okay, so there's something lock solid. Okay, we got two things we know. One from the Old Testament prophets, one from Jesus Christ himself. And then the early church had another stream, and that was the apostles. The apostles who spoke with authority equal to um, Scripture. Now, an example here, I went, I, I went to uh, <laughs> I put John 4.2. That should be Revelation 4.2, but it was written by John. In my mind, I just must have went, flip that. But Revelation 4.2, written by John, who was one of the apostles, he said, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Now you could go on and here's descriptions, but you want to get a view of what God was like? John went there in this vision and he's telling you about it. Lock solid. There's three different ways that we can get trustworthy information about heaven. So 
that's the first thing I want to give you. The Bible's authoritative. Early church took these different uh, sources or streams of authoritative, trustworthy information. Now, the second point I want to make is that there are no other authorities going forward. No other authorities going forward. And in the early church, you see that Paul recognized Luke's writing. Peter recognized Paul's writing. The early church recognized the writings as authoritative and having power and trustworthiness in those early apostles in the writing. And when you go into history, you can see that the early church leaders, the early church fathers also began to recognize those books were belonging in Scripture. I just, a few examples, Clement of Rome in AD 95, he mentions at least eight books. Ignatius of Antioch in AD 115, he mentions seven books. Polycarp, who by the way was a disciple of John, who wrote Revelation there, um, he acknowledged 15 books. Irenaeus mentioned 21 books. Hipp Hippolytus recognized 22 books. There was a recognition of the books, but in AD 397, all the apostles are gone, but there began to be these series of councils and they recognized all 27 books. These are the books. And I put up here that the canon was closed. John writes at the end of Revelation, there's a warning not to add any words. There are no writers after the apostles died who could write a book and it be the equivalent of belonging in Scripture. And this is important because of my first step in telling you about where people get their information about heaven. I want you to trust God's Word. I, 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 and I'm going to show you one passage where Paul, where he says, I was taken up to heaven. This is where we get our information from. Not a guy who was sitting in a lazy boy who had a heart attack who then woke up and brushed the potato chips off and said, I want to tell you about heaven. I'm going to take the words of Paul and I'm going to take the words of John and Jesus and that's where I'm going to form my beliefs and my hopes about my future. Now, I, I, I wanted to say one more thing about this because we have to recognize the apostles, they all died. And here's what scripture says about that. In Ephesians 2.20, he's talking about how the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So the, the scripture describes it this way. The church, the cornerstone is Jesus Christ. The first stone that the entire building's going to rest upon. That's the first thing. The cornerstone. Then the foundation that's laid next to it. The apostles and the prophets, he says in Ephesians. And I, I think I said this in the Galatians series at the end. Buildings only have one foundation. There are no other apostles that come after them. And then the New Testament says you are living stones built on top of that cornerstone and the foundation. And the church goes upward, but there's only one foundation. And there's only one authority in that foundation. The cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So, 
That first point, everything else this summer we cover, that's what I got to give you out of, the, out of the gate, is the Bible is authoritative. But number two today, what I'm going to give you is the Bible is selective. It doesn't always give us everything we want to know. God gives us exactly what we need to know. And there's an element then of faith. And sometimes we, we might guess at things. I read a book on heaven. It's a very popular book, Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. You might, he's a, he's a, a Christian writer. And some of his chapters, like he had a chapter in there, will your pet be in heaven? You know, I'm sure a question some people, my own daughter is probably going to talk to me about this today because she's got a lot of pets. You know, the, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know, but he has a way of trying to answer that by taking some, some things to answer that. But what I want to say is the Bible's selective in what it does tell us. God is the one that chooses. And here in this section, I want to give you a few things. Our first lesson on heaven, I've got to give you some basics. So here's number one, where is heaven? And here's what I'm going to say about it. <clears throat> number one, it's spatial. It's real. And I, I'm saying that because I don't want you to, you know, we live in this age where there are all these movies about the multiverse or other realms. And, you know, I was transported to some other thing, not in this universe. No, it's a real place. It's there's a space, just like you could say, I'm going to Micronesia Mall. You could actually get in a car, drive there, walk if you want, but at some point you could find it, and there it is. That's heaven. There's a place, heaven. And let me just show you this. In John 14, 2, I already used this verse. I go to prepare a place. There's the Greek word, tapos. And that word means physical, locatable place. I mean, just think about a word we get from that, topography, right? The study of what the land looks like. It's a place, okay? Here's something else. This, this, don't fall out of your chair. It's up. Heaven is up. See, that's another one where you go, well, up is, you know, I mean, depending on what part of the planet you're standing on, what's really up then, you know? Because you're going out into what, outer space. What could I... You know, what if I'm upside down? Now I'm really down. That's not up, you know. I mean, but this is the way the Bible describes it. Isaiah 14, this is uh, talking about Lucifer in his rebellion. And Lucifer says this, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. He describes I'm going to come and take God's place. And he describes where it is. The farthest sides of the north? Huh, that's interesting. One writer said it may be reasonable to conclude that heaven is somewhere in the northern heavens beyond the range of astronomers' most powerful telescopes. Astronomers even tell us that this part of outer space contains fewer stars and galaxies than other parts. I'm going to add more to this as we go through the series, but right now what I'm trying to show you is what, just how the Bible describes it. It's a real place. It's up, okay? And there's three heavens. The way the Bible describes heavens, it's three different words that it uses. And let me show you this. The first heaven in the Bible 
is atmospheric. In other words, if you go outside and you look up in the sky and you see blue skies, the Bible actually uses the word heavens to describe that. Isaiah 55 uh, says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, this is atmospheric heaven. Snow doesn't come from outer space. Rain doesn't come from outer space. It uses the word heaven to describe the atmosphere. That's first heaven. Second heaven is outer space. Okay? Genesis 1, 14 to 17, God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from night. He's talking about creating stars and out there in outer space. And he describes outer space as heavens. And you can read through that. And there's a couple other uh, references to heavens in, those, in verses 16 to 17. Psalm 19, 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. How? You look at outer space and its vastness. I look at that and I go, if a being created that, how much power does that being have? He's bigger than that. The heavens declare the majesty of God. That's a second heaven. Now here's maybe perhaps the best. And there's the one place, if you have your Bible, open up. I'm gonna, we're going to actually go to this one. I know I've been putting the verses up there to save your fingers uh, from turning pages or swiping. Some of you just use your phones, I know. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul, in chapter 11, has been going through this, this uh, section where he talks about all the things that he suffered as a, as a Christian and the things he could boast in. And in chapter 12, he says, I must go on boasting Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations. Now he's going to go, here's something else I could boast in. First, I could boast about all the road traveled and the persecutions and the things I've gone through. But now let me boast about, there's something else to boast about. And he says, I know a man in Christ. He's speaking in the third person. This is him, though, he's talking about. Who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the, what does it say? Yes. You see, if there's a third heaven, you can assume there's a first and a second heaven, which I already gave you, okay? A third, he was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And I love this part of his description. Was it a vision? Were you physically transported off of earth? He says, I don't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. Twice he says that in the section, Okay. But he goes on to say, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And here's, here's a section that I want to give you right here. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. The guy we get most of our truth from was taken to heaven the third heaven, which, by the way, is where God lives, God's abode. He dwells there. But he was taken there, and he said, don't say or describe what you're seeing. Now, see, I just have a problem with people who 
like write books about, I went there and let me tell you what I saw. Well, why did he not let Paul say something? Why are you 2,000 years later getting up out of your lazy boy, brushing your chips off and wanting to tell me about heaven? Paul wasn't allowed to say anything, but then John, he could say a little bit more. He gave an attempt. He tried. You should read about it. We're going to cover it at one point in the series. But that's part of what I say is that the Bible is selective. He told Paul, you can't say something about what you're seeing here. But then John, describe it a little bit. And he does. Now, as we're walking through this, we see it's a place. It's up. There's three heavens. The heaven where God dwells is the third heaven. Now, let me answer this question. Because the first one is, where is heaven? How about what's in heaven? What's there? Okay? I'm going to give you what the Bible says, not what, you know, some testimony, modern testimony. First, I'll say is obviously God is God's abode. Hebrews 10, 12 to 13. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And we already know John describes first person of the Trinity, God the Father sitting in the throne here. The writer of Hebrews says, next to him is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And he has a function. He serves as the high priest. He's, he's talking to God about us. He's intervening, the Bible says, on our behalf. But what I want you to see is what's in heaven, God, and see that next to him, his Son, Jesus Christ. I put here his angels, Revelation 5.11. John's describing this. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The word myriad means like an uncountable number. There's an uncountable number of uncountable numbers of angels. Heaven is filled with angels. The Father, the Son, His angels... And saints, 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If the Lord is seated next to the Father, to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. Then the saints, those who put their faith in Christ, when they pass away, they're in heaven with the Lord. Now, I also put here our future home. John 14, going back to that, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place, tapas, for you. And you read through that passage. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. And here's the thing. And I wanted to give this to you because here on this earth, sometimes we see the construction of something that's going to be grand. And you're like, wow, I can't wait till they finish that. And you're watching the construction of it. And over time, it's like there's the foundation and they built something else and it's growing bigger and bigger. I mean, imagine uh, building um, a skyscraper. You're living in New York and you're watching that Freedom Tower go up, right? Or go all the way back to the days of Noah when they were like, what is that guy building? It's a boat. What is a boat? What is, what, that, well, why do you need that? Look how big it is. But you're watching over decades and decades something being built. In heaven, Jesus says he's preparing. Something's being made over time for his people. Now that's important to know because another lesson in the series, we're going to talk about 
how that place being made, we come into uh, possession of that, to dwell in that. That's a very interesting lesson we're going to... But, but I wanted you to see right now what's in heaven. There's God, there's His Son, there's angels, there's the saints, and they're watching this being made. Now, I don't know what would excite you the most. At some point, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I, just, I had this thought because this week, I was eating breakfast one, one morning at my house. And Micah and Nathaniel, Nathaniel, they work out in the morning. Then Nathaniel came over. He's eating breakfast. So there's all of us at the table. And uh, I heard them talking. Here's what their conversation was about. Because they love soccer. And the conversation was, I hope Ronaldo's in heaven. He's like, you know, the, who's the best soccer player ever? Ronaldo. I hope he's in heaven because it would be awesome to meet him and talk to him. And I thought, that's funny. Like, that's, like, you're thinking about who you might get to meet in heaven. I always thought, man, I, I want to talk to Noah. What was it like on the ark? I want to talk to Samson. I want to talk to all the, you know, our sons. Ronaldo. I don't know. I mean, maybe you live like that, you know? I hope that movie star's there so I can finally get to meet them, you know? Uh, but this is, but you're thinking about that. That's what heaven is filled with God's people, filled with the saints, filled with the Father. And there's this construction going on of our future home. Now, what's in heaven? I kind of finished this last one by just asking the question, how do I get there? How do I get there? Now, <clears throat> most of you in here, go, you're going to be able to answer this question. I want you to think through it a specific way because we're, we're traveling back at the end of the summer. Uh, some of you know uh, my uh, wife's mom, my mother-in-law, passed away. We're going to gather with the family. We're traveling back. And as part of the travels, you know, we're thinking ahead. We're booking an airline ticket. We are booking a hotel. We are booking a rental car. But everything's done in advance and reserved and held for us. Okay? I want you to think about heaven in that way through this series. How do you get a reservation? You see, it's totally poor planning to just show up at the airport. Hey, we're leaving. You got a flight for us? I mean, maybe they do. Maybe they don't. They're like, who are you? What, what do they say? What's your name? Let me see your reservation. You show up. You got a rental car. Oh, we're all sold out. It's not good planning. We don't live on earth like that. I want to say to you, you need to be thinking that way about eternity. Do you have a reservation? That's the question, really. You know, Revelation 21, 27 says, But there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Meaning, there's an actual book, <clears throat> and your name is either in it or it's not. You have a reservation or you do not. In fact, I put one verse up here. What, can I see the next one? Uh, if anyone 
If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You either enter into heaven because you have a reservation or you don't. Now, that should shape how you live. That's why my last point, what I'm going to close with, is the Bible is formative. It shapes how we live. It's formative, applying what we know. And I kind of, I'm just going to give you the, these three words, or these, these three points. The first is the great omission, okay? What do I mean by that? Well, I started out talking about true north and the compass within you. How do you orient your life? Are you oriented because there's this reservation that is in the future that impacts how you're living now? You don't, do you think about the reservation? <clears throat> if you're going on a trip and it's going to be a great trip, hey, we're getting, we're getting away. I know a family in this church in the middle of the typhoon when there was no power and no water and their house was destroyed. They had already planned a vacation. Boy, that vacation couldn't come quick enough. You know, and it was like, I'm looking forward to getting away from this. They were oriented in all of that storm, in the post-storm, towards the vacation, right? Now, heaven's not a vacation. We'll talk about that in the series. But how are you oriented? The fact that you have a reservation going backwards in times, it affects how you're living now, is my point. And the reality is that Pastors and churches don't talk about this enough. Perhaps the reason why you're not oriented for eternity is because we don't talk about it enough and don't teach about it enough. One writer I read said, when the church doesn't have heaven on its mind, it tends to grow indulgent and self-centered and weak. Our thoughts are consumed with our present needs and heaven becomes an afterthought. That's why there isn't always a lot of difference between the lifestyles of Christians and non-Christians. Churchgoers increasingly live like the world does, and we're letting the popular culture press us into its mold. But we are to hope in the right things. We are to hope in our eternal destiny secured in heaven through Christ. And I was reminded about on this point, I told you through, well, at one point in the summer, one of my favorite pastors died of cancer, Tim Keller, a Presbyterian in New York. Baptists can like Presbyterians, see? And he was a, was a, was a good author, but here's, you know why I tell you this? Because only like two weeks ago, I found this uh, YouTube video of John Piper, and he's describing his last conversation with Tim Keller. These are the last words that he and I, and John Piper's a, uh, a famous pastor of his own mold, two of the greatest evangelical leaders, I would say, in the last 20 to 30 years. And one is talking to the other, and he knows it's coming soon. This might be my last conversation with Tim Keller. And Here's what was plucked out of that. What do we rejoice in when it's all over? In both of them, they went to Luke chapter 10, verse 20, which says this, <clears throat> Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, just you don't know the context there, but the disciples had been sent out by Jesus and they came back and they were all excited because their ministry was great. They went out and they were even saying to Jesus, even the, the spirits, listen, they, we commanded the spirits. We had authority over them. So they're, expi- they're excited about successful ministry. <clears throat> and here's two of the greatest evangelical leaders of the church. They have so much to be proud of and excited of what they've accomplished, the churches that they've impacted, the books that they've written. And what do they come to? To this passage where Jesus says, don't be excited about this. Rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. That's why I want to take you to that, to a reservation. Do you have a reservation in heaven or not? And of everything I ever do in life, what I should rejoice in the most is I know my name's written in heaven. Is yours? The great omission means we need to talk about it because it orients our true north. Secondly, this impacts the Great Commission. I can't camp out here long, but simply I wanted to give you this thought. If heaven, a real place, then hell, a real place. And that should motivate us for the loved ones we have, for the friends, for the co-workers that you're going to walk around, that you will spend time with. Do they have a reservation? I have a reservation, so I think about, does my family have a reservation? My extended family? My friends? And this study should not only reorient our true north, but it should invigorate, reinvigorate, I should say, looking through a lens that is witnessing and thinking about the salvation of the people that we love. And lastly, and here's what I'm going to finish today's message on, the great submission. The Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess at some point. But you either submit to Christ as a, as a rebel or you find your name written in the book of life and he's your king. And I, I finish here with 1 Peter 1.4. It says, We have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away. And here is the word, reserved for you in heaven. In the same way that I have planned and I have a reservation for a plane ticket, I have a reservation for a hotel, I have a reservation for a car, we need to think about our eternal reservation. Ruthanna was a professional singer. And she got hired to sing at the wedding of one of Seattle's most elite, powerful, and rich families. She thought it was a great honor. The day came, her and her husband, they went to the wedding. And her time came where she was going to get up and sing at this wedding. And as she tells the story, she was most excited, she said, about after the wedding, 
the feast because it was being held in one of the famous towers of Seattle, the tallest one. The top two floors had been reserved for this feast. All of Seattle's famous rich people were going to be there. They were going to get to go. And they were going to get to eat in luxury and rub elbows with all these people. And she tells this story. She sang, and it was great, and the wedding. And then they got in their car, and they drove to where the reception and the, the marriage feast was going to be. And she describes it. She walked in, and, and everyone was gathering in a large area. And then the, the bride and groom showed up, and they, they came in, and they watched him go up this escalator to, to where they were all going to be headed. And there was a maitre d' there and they let them in and then the guests begin to file in because the bride and groom were now there and she said our turn came we rode up that escalator we got up through that line and the maitre d asked me for our names and he looked down at his book and he began to struggle to find the name he says could you spell it for me and she spelled it and he looked and after a lot of searching he finally looked up he says your names are not here she said no that can't be You don't understand. I was the singer at the wedding. I have to be there. And he said, I'm sorry, ma'am, your name is not here. If your name is not in this book, I cannot let you in. It doesn't matter if you were the singer or not. It doesn't matter what you did at the wedding. It doesn't matter what you did before. What matters is if your name is in the book or not. Then he turned and he, he motioned to the ushers who came over and collected them and whisked them out. And she describes as they were being whisked out, they glanced over and saw the ice sculptures and the buffet tables and people in their tuxedos and nice clothes eating and their hearts just sank. And he put them in the elevator and they reached in and they hit G for garage. And they went all the way down and she said, suddenly we were, we were outside on the street She said, we sat in the car silent, riding home until my husband said, honey, what happened? She said, I recall now when the invitation came, it said, you have to RSVP to hold our reservation. She said, I was so busy, I forgot. And they rode a little longer and she said, I began to cry because... She said, it gave me a feeling for what it will be like for people who have not reserved a place in heaven. And they're going to see people ushered into the marriage feast of the Lamb, and they miss out because they didn't have a reservation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth. Thank you for the apostles who give us that truth. And There's so much said today about eternity that's not right. We cannot shape who you are just because we can't fathom you, an aspect of you. We can't stomach thinking, why would you do that? Whatever your word says is truth. And on the one hand, Lord, I thank you so much that you've given us What you wanted, it may be selective. You haven't told us everything, but you've given us what you want us to know. And I thank you that you've given us the knowledge of our future. And I pray that through this series, we'd be motivated to put our hope 
in the right place, to orient our true north towards heaven, towards you. And I pray, God, that we would be motivated to see our loved ones through this lens. Do we have a a reservation? Do they have a reservation? Because we don't want to miss out. To miss out on an earthly wedding is one thing. To miss out on eternity is another. So I pray that you would just teach us, motivate us, and encourage us this summer in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll finish worshiping together.